Um, uh, the Americans have this thing in their foreign services. When they send an ambassador out to a different country, they have this phrase that's called going native. And this phrase means that when the representative of one nation, he comes over the course of time to serve the interests of the nation he's been sent to. Rather than being an ambassador to that country, he ends up being a citizen almost of that country. And it's this idea of going native. It's this idea of being won over by a hostile country and going over towards that hostile country and serving them. Uh, he's supposed to be an ambassador. And we often hear the cry in churches, in books, in media, for the Christian to engage the culture. And one of the cries has been to have a transformative effect of our culture. We want to come into our culture. We want to have a transformative effect on it. We want it to be more Christ-like. We want it to bring uh, into it. And Ken Myers, he notes that the prevailing cultural view of Christians is this idea that we can have this transformative effect on the culture by fully participating in our culture's disorders. That's really not the case. Uh, he sees this as this sort of naive and careless effort to pursue, sometimes for the very best Christian reasons, cultural transformation. But as we have seen over the course of the last 30 years, this inevitably backfires. It backfires on us. We find a lot of Christians going native, falling to the culture that they have gone into. And rather than being an ambassador for Christ, have become a citizen of this world. And so the cry is, engage the culture. Engage the culture. We need to be engaging the culture. And that word engaging is very ambiguous, isn't it? In what way? Because that word changes based on the context, doesn't it? We can talk about soldiers engaging in combat. That's a little different, isn't it? Debaters can engage in arguments. Lovers can be engaged. Already we see that engaged has a lot of different meanings, doesn't it? What does it mean as Christians to be culturally engaged? Who is engaging who? And how? How are we engaging them? We've seen this push for more and more cultural engagement, which has unfortunately failed to deliver much cultural transformation at all, but rather has led to cultural captivity. It has led to us becoming one with the culture. And here, Peter is going to give us a fresh look. When I say fresh, it is 2,000 years old, but it's fresh for us because we haven't really heard it. We live in a world that is awash with sin and awash with disorder, and so how are we as Christians, how do we do it? Because our engagement with the culture is uh, less like what we've come to expect in the last 30 years and more really about our being set aside to God and being a distinct people group in the midst of some of the most horrendous sins that we see going on around us. And as I was researching this passage, I really felt like as I was coming to it, I'm like, oh man, this is a bit of a handful. This is a bit like, I'm not sure where I'm going to go with this one. And then as I'm re researching and looking at it, I'm like, this is, this is our time. He could just as easily be writing it to us. And you're going to see, as we unpack this, that that really is the case. Um, so I've got three points that I want you guys to know. Um, and they're going to move from kind of the individual, and then it's going to move out into sort of cultural impacts. And so my first point is this, freedom from the flesh. My second point is mortifying the flesh. And my third point is triumphing over the flesh. And so let's read the first two verses of 1 Peter 4 again. Peter, uh, Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
And Peter starts with Jesus. And you can never go wrong when you're starting with Jesus, right? And he brings us to Jesus and he says, remember Christ. Remember how he suffered. Remember how he died for the sake of his people. And here this phrase suffering, what is he talking about? He's suffering in the flesh. Well, we know from last week's passage that meant his death. Peter's talking about Christ's death here. That's what it means to suffer in the flesh. And he says, all of you have this same attitude. He says, arm yourselves. Come into this armory, take these weapons, get out ready for a battle. And what's our weapons of warfare? How do we do battle against these powers and authorities that we saw last week Christ has already triumphed over? How do we fight? It's to be willing to die. Being willing to suffer in the flesh. And Peter says, whoever has suffered in the flesh, that is, whoever has died like Christ, has ceased from sin. And Peter has linked those two phrases, suffer in the flesh, and they're both speaking of death, that ultimate suffering. He's not saying that if we suffer, somehow we're ceased from sin. We're no longer able to sin. We don't sin anymore. We've suffered. We're no longer able to sin. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this word cease really means finish, to be finished with something, to be done with something, to put it to the side. It is, it's enough. It's complete. It's done. He's saying that when you have suffered in the flesh, when you have died, you are finished with sin. You are done with it. You cease from it. It's no longer something that has power over you. It's no longer something that you continue in. It's something that you put to the side. It's really what the Apostle Paul refers to when he says that we are dead to sin. Have a look to how the Apostle Paul says it in Romans 8 verses 2 to 4. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done, and listen to the the similarities in language here, he says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is a very similar passage, isn't it? All similar themes, all similar language, all talking about the flesh. And what Peter is talking about here is the Christian who has died with Christ and is now living for Christ. It is the Christian who has died to self and now lives to God. We no longer walk here according to the flesh, according to our natural desires, our hopes, our dreams, our wants, our wishes. He says here, human passions, the worldly things that everyone else is so concerned about. Rather, we have suffered in the flesh. What does that mean? We have died to those things. We've died to them. We've turned away from them to follow Christ according to the Spirit. And any person who has done this, they have suffered in the flesh. They have a completely new attitude now. New desires, new wants, new hopes. They used to be this way, and now they're this way. They used to think these things, but now they think these things, and they're impacted by who Jesus is. Peter says they no longer live for the rest of the time in the flesh for human passions. We walk away from that. We walk away from what the society tells us, from what even our family might tell us, from what our workplace tells us, what the, even the sinful desires of our own heart might tell us. And we live our lives, Peter says here, for the will of God. We now have a different will. Before, there were all these wills competing for your attention, right? You had your heart and it was saying, yeah, do this. This is feel good. This is the right way to act. And then you've got someone speaking in here and telling you, oh, you ought to do this and you ought to think this. And then you watch media and media tells you, here's the attitude you're supposed to have. And then the Christian, we go, no, what does God think? That's the voice we care about. 
Our heart says this, and God says this, eh, I'm going to go with God, because my heart has a pretty bad track record of getting me in trouble, of putting me in bad positions, of bringing death into my life. We are, as Christians, you can think of it this way, a people who have died to self. We have died to self. We saw in Peter so far the ways that we have died to self. Because when we realize suffering ultimately in the Christian context is dying, isn't it? It's dying. It's not easy. Remember when he talked about our marriages? And he addressed wives and he addressed husbands. And he said, suffer, die. It isn't easy. We often think that it's easy for everyone else to do it. But then when God calls us to do it, when it comes along and we, it's just hard to die to self, isn't it? And sometimes it's, it's simple. And you know it's simple because just think about someone else. Let's think about your spouse for a second. You know your spouse pretty well, except those of us are married here. Sorry for those that aren't married. Um, but you know your spouse pretty well. What would it take for them to fix your marriage? Some of us might be like, look, it really is rather simple. All I have to do is X, Y, and Z. Right? The wife might say, look, I'm not asking for much. I just want him to communicate with me more. Just say a few nice things here and there. You know, maybe a massage at night, pitch in more around the house. It's really quite simple. Why doesn't he get it? Why doesn't he do it? But it's not simple. For him to do that, he has to die to himself. And you're thinking, oh, this is melodramatic. Come on, it's true. The husband might say to his wife, all I want is a bit of respect, a bit of deference, to be left alone a little bit more, you know, to get a bit more affection. It's really easy. It's simple. No, it's not. For your wife to do that, she has to die. When the slave obeys the cruel master, he has to die to do it. To the child who has to obey their parents, when they do not think their parents are right, they have to die to themselves to do it. To the generous giver, right? They're giving their hard-earned money with any, without any hope of repayment. And when we give, we, it means to die to self. When you want repayment, you're not, you're not dying to yourself. For the missionary, who knows that talking about Jesus could get him mocked, belittled, beaten, imprisoned, or even killed, to continue sharing Jesus, what does he have to do? Die to himself. It's this phrase Peter says here, suffer in the flesh. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. This is the way that Christians live. We're constantly dying. We're constantly suffering. And you think, why is anyone doing this? Why does anyone ever sign up for this? You all have to be insane to sign up for something like that. Why are you constantly prioritizing obedience to God over your own passions and desires? Why do you prioritize your spouse's well-being over your own? Why do you prioritize all these areas that God has commanded you to do? You're constantly putting to death the feelings and attitudes that are sinful. And sometimes dying means more than all of these things. Like, for instance, think about dying doesn't always mean being a pushover. It doesn't mean always not getting your own way because sometimes dying to self means you have to initiate a conflict that you've been avoiding for a long time and you know it's going to go badly. 
In fact, it could, you know it's going to go nuclear. But you know the call of God is this needs to be confronted. Like just a personal example, I had a really terrible conversation once with my nana and pop about the things of God. And my pop pulled me aside and he said, mate, we've had religious friends and our best friends are religious. And you know why we're best friends with them? Because they've never once tried to shove their religion down our throat. Yeah, he shut, he shut me up pretty good. <laughs> did I talk to them about the things of God again? No, not until yesterday. But you know what I did? I'd just written this sermon and I was driving down to Aladala and I said to myself, Cody, you're going to have to die to yourself because you know this can go really badly. But do you love your nana enough to say something? I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. This is just like a real-world example of how this is applied in our lives. And I went, yes. And I died to myself. And I was trembling when I was praying because I was so fearful that it was just going to go really pear-shaped and they would accuse me of all these ulterior motives. And then to my shock, God used it for His glory. And praise God for that. See, dying to self can have a whole range of means. You want a really weird one? Dying to self might mean getting into a physical fight with someone, even though you're terrified because it is right to either defend that person or defend yourself. You don't want to be the coward. Sometimes dying to yourself means when that strange noise comes in night and your wife elbows you and tells you to go check it out and you're a little afraid of the dark, you go out and you check it, right? Peter is saying here, yes, we are suffering as we constantly battle sin within us, but we are being more and more moved into the will of God. And these are our weapons to fight sin and its self-denial. This is done with the mind. It's not done with penances. It's not done with hardships. It's not done with, well, I did this bad thing. I'm going to punish myself for it. It's a change of mind. It's not cold heart aestheticism or abstinence from pleasure. It's not giving yourselves over to a life of misery, but rather it's this idea of being willing on to take whatever misery necessary to do this will of God. And that's a change of mind. And that's what Peter says you must arm yourself with. The same way of thinking. Rather than this, paradoxically, rather than this leading to a miserable marriage, as you go, I have to die to myself. I'd really rather that they die to themselves, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And you think, it's going to be a miserable marriage. He's going to walk all over me. She'll never say anything nice about me ever again. Or whatever thing is coming to your mind in that minute. And rather than it leading to a miserable marriage, you find to your astonishment, you're receiving more and more joy from God. You find to your astonishment that your behavior is starting to have a transformative effect in your household. Rather than when we as parents die to ourselves when our children are being so frustrating that you want to just explode in anger or you want to explode in frustration or you want to just be done with this issue and move on and let them get up to whatever stuff they want to get up to. Instead, you die to yourself. And it accumulates over time and that constant self-denial leads to a joyful family. Would you rather, this is the question, would you rather be a part of a community that practiced daily self-denial to follow the will of God? Or would you rather the opposite? Would you rather a community that sought their own wills as primary, as first? A community full of selfish people who followed their passions. We know what we want as a community, but we don't want to be the people in that community. 
This all happens to us as a result of the work of God transforming us, right? Matthew Henry says that man is not a sincere creature, but partial, blind, and wicked, till he be renewed and sanctified by the regenerating grace of God. Have a listen at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. And I really want you to pay attention to the end of this passage. Have a listen. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Pretty hard stuff. But verse 11, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We used to be these people. We used to practice these things. But now we are different. We are sanctified. We are justified, washed, clean, restored. No longer living for human passions, but for the will of God. And this is what theologians call mortifying the flesh. And I want to give you guys a crash course on what it means to mortify the flesh from First uh, Peter chapter 4. Uh, but when we do that, it's this process of putting to death the sin in our lives so that we can have more spirit-filled joy. And it's my second point, mortifying the flesh. And we're going to pick that up from verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He begins by saying, for the time that is past, as in the time that has happened, suffices, is complete, for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Here's who you used to be. This is what uh, Peter is saying. Here's who you used to be. Back in the day, back in the past, here's what you used to be. That, di- that time is done. Used to do, you used to live like the rest of the pagans, but now you live to God. You used to be those who were going to give an account to God, but now you have ceased from sin. Sin is broken, its power is gone, and the victory is at hand. These are the things you need to put to death. Here's who you used to be you are that person no more. And here, Peter has in mind these pagan religious festivals that you would find in the Greco Roman world. Now, these were these great feasts, and they really were this outpouring of significant alcoholic consumption and licentiousness. This word here that is translated orgy, which we kind of have our current 21st century mindset of what that looks like, but it really was the phrase that you would apply to this festival dedicated to the god Bacchus. And Bacchus was the god of wine, the god of fertility, and you kind of know what he's about just from those two things. Anyway, this was an event called Bacchanalia, where the members of the whole community would gather together for this massive scene of dancing and music and drinking, and they would take psychoactive drugs, and they would engage in all sorts of illicit sexual activity. It really was kind of the woodstock of ancient Rome. And the cult of Bacchus only allowed female priestesses to serve, and they were basically glorified prostitutes. You can use your imagination. I'm not going to go into it any further, but it is one of the most depraved events you can think of. And where did it take place? In the town center, through the city streets. You only had to look out your window to see some of the most shocking things that you could possibly imagine. 
And the whole point of the festival, this is the point of it, throw off all discipline, all of society's discipline, all of their restraints, everything that they tell you to do, throw it all off and return to your natural primordial state. This is the real you. And for one day of the year, we become our true selves. And it was so outrageous of the festival, eventually the Romans cracked down on it. And it has to be pretty depraved for the Romans to think enough is enough, guys, we need to rein this in. But when Peter is writing, there is no law against it. These festivals were alive and well. Very similar festival that we have today is Mardi Gras. Very, very similar festival. And it really shows that there is a considerable amount of overlap between the time of the apostles and the time we are living in today. It wasn't merely enough to allow the festival to occur. You had to participate and you had to celebrate. And if you didn't, you were in big trouble. And the early Christians, some of whom were used to be regular attenders of this festival before they are now Christians, they have to deal with the name-calling and the attacks and the character assassinations that came with not participating anymore. They knew you were no longer dancing in the streets with them. They knew you were no longer wearing the clothes and the garbs and you were staying home. And when they didn't dress up for the festival, people noticed. When you didn't fly their decorations, people noticed. Isn't that the same today? If you don't fly the rainbow flag, you're going to get in big trouble. If you don't show up in the wear it purple day, what happens? You set yourself aside as someone who does not participate. It's not enough to politely decline. You have to celebrate it. And at a rapid pace, we are descending into Bacchus worship. We just don't have that little goat god prancing around everywhere. What's worshipped instead? Ourselves. A pursuit of pleasure, eroticism, altered states of consciousness, and most importantly, a repudiation of God's law. That's what he says at the end here. Lawless idolatry in this list. It's quite obvious in the Bacchanalia because you had the worship of false gods, whether it's Bacchus or Jupiter or Artemis or the individual. They are all marked by hatred of God and a refusal to submit to his holy law and a full frontal assault on all who do not participate. You've got to remember that a lot of these Gentile Christians in Peter's day lost their lives because they said no to this kind of stuff. And this is the natural way that humanity goes without God. It's a result of God's judgment upon them. Have a listen to Romans 1, 24 to 25. Peter, I believe, probably has Bacchanalia in the back of his mind as he's talking about this. He said, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. See, Peter expects this kind of behavior from the Gentiles, right? He says, you know, this is what the Gentiles do, but this isn't you anymore. This isn't who you are. We should, ex- like Peter, we should expect this kind of behavior from people who have been given over by God. It is evident before our eyes that all of these people have just been handed over to their sin by God. It's flaunted. It's right in your face. Every time you go to the library and there's that drag queen story hour, they want, it's an all-consuming passion to take over the entire culture. They have a plan of cultural transformation. 
and they're diligent in putting it into place. And while the culture is engaging this behavior, thinking that it makes them alive and unrestrained, we see the church. And they have a completely different culture. They're not entering into those festivals and trying to transform them from the inside out. They're separate from them. They have removed themselves from them. They aren't concerned with doing their own will. They aren't concerned with following their passions or desires. See, as Christians, we do what's called mortify our sins. We put those desires to death. Mortify comes from the Latin word for death. It's killing our sins. And how do we do that? It's not by thinking about them a lot and saying, I'm not going to do this. It's by walking in the Spirit. It's by saying, what is God's will for me? I would rather do that than obey what I had before. And we live our lives doing the will of God. And it will cost you in the culture. It will cost you. Because things change. When you no longer participate in sexually provocative conversations that you, find, you may find at work. When you no longer watch TV shows that are filled with pornography. When you no longer get drunk at parties and events. When you no longer have the same political beliefs as other people, when you no longer prioritize wealth and comfort and pleasure and ease and people look at the decisions you're making and they're thinking, why on earth are you doing that? What is your purpose? What happens? We see that they malign you, verse 4. They're surprised, number one. Surprised. Everyone else is doing it. Everyone else enjoys it. No one else has a problem with it. And then there's you, who used to be one of us, and now we're surprised when you do not join. He says, join them in the same flood of debauchery, which is really join them in the same cesspit of debauchery, and they malign you. So what, here's what we can expect from the culture when we refuse to participate. At first, it's surprise, and then they'll try to entice you. You know, you might get it, oh, just one more beer, mate. You know, you can have one more beer, it's only one. You know, come out for a ladies' night. We promise we won't get too wild. Just watch this thing. You won't regret it. And when you stand firm, after attempts of enticing you and being surprised and being like, what? You're not doing this with us? What happens next? It turns to anger. Or oh, you think you're better than us? Or oh, you think that what we're doing is wrong? Oh, I didn't say that, you know, and then it doesn't matter. They pile on. When did you become a bigot? Look at this holier-than-thou guy. Whatever stuff they're going to have, they'll start attacking you for your behavior. But we must remember what Peter says here. Verse 5, he reminds the church, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And who is that him? Jesus. Who will come again and judge the living and the dead. The Jesus who called them out as a people for himself. Jesus who said to these people, they are mine and they no longer worship your gods. And every person will give an account to him and those who persecute his church and malign his people and mock his word will find themselves silenced on that day. They will find themselves like, well, this took an interesting turn on that day. That's to say the least. But those Christians who love Jesus, who persevered in suffering and tribulation and social rejection and killed their sins and mortified their sins and turned to Jesus, find themselves lifted up and raised from the dead. And it leads me to my third point. These Christians when they come before Christ, will find themselves triumphing over the flesh. My third point. Let's read our last verse. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. 
Now, at first, our faith in Christ comes with a lot of costs, doesn't it? It comes with a lot of costs. When we warn of God's impending judgment and people look at us curiously. You know, in the early church, think about Peter's day. And the Christians are, are giving this warning and they're saying, God has appointed a man, this man Jesus, who will judge the world. And you guys are falling under judgment. You know, it's what we find the Apostle Paul saying in the book of Acts. This, this kind of message. How do you think they're going to respond? We're falling under judgment? Look at you guys. Look what you're going through. Look at your experiences. We are having fun and celebrating and have so much influence and control and prosperity and you're socially ostracized. You're getting pushed out of every institution. Some of you guys have been killed for your beliefs. We have all the power and nothing is standing in our way. If anyone is being judged right now, it's not us, it's you. You Christians, you guys are being judged. You're the ones who have it hard. What is your God doing for you? Because we can show you what our gods are doing for us. If someone said that to you, would you doubt the goodness of God in that moment? And I'm not saying like, in the best case scenario, yeah, you wouldn't doubt it, you would stand firm. I mean, like, it's a powerful argument, right? It would hold some sway to those early Christians. And it is a cause for doubt in their hearts. They have fled to Jesus, and they fled to him in the midst of a great persecution, and some of them have seen their brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children being imprisoned and some put to death. And not just put to death by the Gentiles, but by the Jews, the people of God. The people whose Messiah they are believing in, they are also the ones who are persecuting them. And you can feel like everyone is against you. And to the normal person, it's not winning. The Christians are not winning. In fact, they are getting defeated and they are dying. And Peter reminds them of an important truth. Remember why we preached. Remember why we preached to those who were dead. Remember why we shared the gospel with them. The judgment of God is real and He is going to call to account everyone and we preached the gospel to them that even though they died yet shall they live because at peter's time it's you gotta remember peter he walked with jesus he died and so all the people that have died between jesus and peter have died fairly recently from jesus's resurrection so the question is what's going to happen to those who died he says, remember why we preached to the dead. Remember why we preached to those Christians who died, why we shared the gospel with those who died, so that they will rise again. John 11, 25 to 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Peter is saying to the church, remember our confession. Remember what we believe. This is what we believe. Yes, we're dying. Yes, we're dying just like any other man who's judged in the flesh. Yes, we're dying like, just like any other son and daughter of Adam. We die just like everyone else, don't we? But we have a hope, a rock-solid hope that is placed in the person of Jesus, that we will never truly die that we will live in the Spirit just as He promised us. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 14 says this. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And the early church would talk about Christians dying as falling asleep. Why? Because Jesus will wake them just as he woke Lazarus. And we know that things are not what meets the eye. That those who persist in their rejection of God and their worship of comfort, ease and pleasure and prosperity are receiving their reward. Just this life. And that's it. Is it worth it? And then, judgment in the one to come. I don't know about you, but I don't want that to be my story. Reward now, punishment later. But for those of us in Christ who suffer here in this life and die to ourselves constantly, we will be rewarded in the life to come with a weight of glory beyond comparison. Jesus puts it better than I can. Matthew 16, 24 and 26. That Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Or Peter would say, let him suffer in the flesh, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? See, those that love things that lead to death, they're going to lose their lives. But those who die to themselves will find their lives. And this attacks us right at our core because we don't like dying to self. It's probably our least favorite thing to do out of anything that there is to do. We don't like suffering in this way, but Peter says when we die to self and we suffer wrong and we don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling and we live for Christ and His kingdom, something curious happens. We find ourselves in this different world. We find ourselves with a different kind of joy, with a different kind of peace and contentment and hope. The great irony is that people in the world who appear to be happy are often miserable. And they look at us thinking, wow, look at all the stuff they're not allowed to do. They must be miserable. And then they look at us and they're shocked to find joy. I hope they're shocked to find joy. They pursue sexual licentiousness, but they're never satisfied. We live according to God's design with sexuality and find joy. They pursue excess, thinking that happiness lies in the bottom of a bottle and yet never find release. We live in moderation and find joy in our fellowship. They have children only to find themselves floundering in the difficulty and desperate to get away from them. And we have children and every day die to self as we love them as God intended. They change their beliefs and practices to fit in with society, thinking that life would be intolerable if they were rejected. And we are rejected by society and find a different, better home in the church. And it's not to say that here in the church, we deny ourselves and then everyone out there, they know deny themselves and they're selfish and they all follow their desires. No, not at all. Obviously, there are some very selfish Christians and there's some very selfless non-Christians. That's not what is being said here. It's really about where are we denying ourselves? Is it for the will of God or for our own motivations and passions? Christ has not merely promised us misery in this life. He hasn't just promised us, guys, you're going to have a terrible life 
but promise me it's going to be all worth it. You're going to end up in heaven and just accept that your life sucks right now and don't worry, you're going to be completely repaid in heaven. It's not the Christian message. It is true in the sense that we will get rewarded in heaven, but He has promised us joy now and He has promised us joy in the suffering. Have a listen to John 15, verses 10 to 11. Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. In other words, doing the will of the Father means that we abide in Jesus. These commandments that has been given. He says, These things that I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Is he promising us that down the road when you die? No. He's saying this is for you now. When you abide in me, you abide and keep my commandments. When we do the will of God that we see here in First Peter. Yes, following Christ is going to cost you. And yet it's free. You don't pay him anything. Yes, following Christ requires you to give up a lot. And yet somehow his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Yes, you may lose the admiration of friends and family that you think you can't possibly live without. And yet you gain the fellowship of God's kingdom. Have a listen to the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 6, 8-9. I know that's a lot of passages, but I can't not quote this one. Paul says, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. So good. To those who know Jesus, we know that this is really an amazing truth. To those who know Jesus, we resonate with those words and we say, yes, we know this is true. We have experienced it. And it hurts so much when we go off the road and we follow our passions again. We go back into the ditch, knowing that there is no joy there and knowing that we found nothing but misery there. And then we ride ourselves and we deny ourselves and we come back on the road and we find ourselves back in our joy with our true treasure, walking alongside our true Savior, Jesus. Because He is a great Savior. And He is better than any worldly goods, any fellowship, any other love that we can think of. He's our Savior, Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. And we love your Son, Jesus. And Lord, we have not seen him, but we really, we know him and we love him. And Lord, we cannot wait for that day when we get to be with him and see him face to face. And Lord, we are greatly comforted in this world when we walk alongside your Son, Jesus, in this life. And on that pilgrim way and we turn aside from all sin and we keep our eyes fixed on your son Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
And we don't turn to the left or to the right, but we stay on that steady path. And Lord, many trials and tribulations come our way and we struggle and we go through many dark, despairing pits. But we know that as we walk through that valley, you are with us. Your rod and your staff comfort us. And Lord, living in a sinful generation and living in such a perverse and adulterous world can take its toll and distract us and bring us misery. And Lord, I pray that we would not get so caught up with cultural transformation as much as transformation through your Holy Spirit and being with your people and seeing your kingdom triumph as it triumphs in spirit and not in flesh. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, and I pray for whatever you have spoken to them this afternoon. I pray that you would bring it afresh to their mind. I pray that whatever changes or whatever things they need to make or whatever things they need to believe, whatever things they need to trust, I pray that they would press into those things with even more fervor and zeal, knowing that these are the things that are going to give them life. And Lord, I pray for all of us who know where we need to deny ourselves and yet we have lived in selfishness and we have said no to you and we know that we need to do this and yet we feel like for some reason we're justified in our sin. And I pray for that person, Lord, that you would help them to see that self-denial is their task as a Christian and that you have not given it to them for misery or suffering, but for joy. So, Father, would you make this transformation in our church? Would you change us by your Holy Spirit? We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.